Welcome to the Sumra Archive podcast. Since 2002, Sumra Archive has been an extension of my personal study and sharing those discoveries with others. Our goal is dedicated to preserving the legacy of jazz musician, composer, keyboard pioneer, visionary philosopher, and band leader, Sun Ra, and his group of master musicians, the Sun Ra Orchestra. You can follow us online at facebook.com sunraarchive and explore our library of articles at sunraarchive.blogspot.com. John's Christopher. Hey, Christopher. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I appreciate you uh, making the time to speak with me. Absolutely. No problem. Uh, very happy to do so. I'd like to welcome John Corbett to the Sunra Archive podcast. John, I have to say from a fellow vinyl freak, it's a real honor. Christopher, great pleasure to be here with you today. So as Sunra fans should know, John has a very impressive CV, and I'm not going to get into all of the details. We're here to focus on uh, his work and perspectives, specifically around Sun Ra, the Saturn Research, and L Saturn organizations, and also the greater artistic community of the Chicago area that fostered period that's largely reflected in the Alton Abraham collection that he did the great service to our community to help rescue and salvage and, and find a safe home for. John is an educator, He's a curator, he's an author, he's a producer of CDs and DVDs, he's the co-owner of a gallery, and he's a self-professed vinyl freak, which we can all relate to. I'm gonna just go straight for the deep question, John. There are a lot of vinyl freaks out there, self-identifying in the world, myself being one. What's the secret that you can share with us how you can go from being a vinyl freak into turning it into a lifetime professional endeavor? How does that happen? From an outsider's perspective, you lead what seems to be a very charmed and blessed life. How did you get to that point? Well, I will say that I feel that way too. I feel very very fortunate to be able to do the things that I do and to be able to kind of chase these things out the way that I have. I made a concerted decision when I was coming out of graduate school. So around 1993, part-time instructor's income and do all of the other things that I wanted to do to the best of my ability and my checkbook and just follow them out. And bit by bit, we managed to find ways to do that at a larger scale. And ultimately, you know, I was booking music and continuing to spend a lot of my money on records, which 
I look back on and I think, how did I ever do that and still eat and house myself? But uh, yeah, I think just finding a way to move forward and not think of myself as having to fit into a particular role, having other people as my boss, that ended up being ultimately what got me to be able to do what I do now. To go along with that, do you have a personal mindset that you try and keep present in your work when you're essentially, I think from my perspective, that you're facilitating the preservation, the dissemination, and the appreciation of art in general? Is there a, an inner voice that leads you to facilitate all of these different uh, activities across so many different mediums? I think there is a there is a unifying principle in a way because we treat all of the arts that we work with as being art. We don't treat music as being separate from the painting and sculpture aspect of what we do or the filmmaking aspect of what we do. I see it as being all part of a bigger set of cultural issues in part revolving around the material of culture, the whole, uh, the idea of like physical objects and how they represent a particular moment in time, how they can animate our ideas about an understanding of uh, a given moment in a historical continuum, but also what they mean in terms of how they are either included in or excluded from a canon. And that ended up really fascinating me at a certain point, in part because a lot of the material that I was drawn to seemed to me to exist outside of the accepted canonical works. And so I wondered how that functioned. How do things get into that? How are they kept out of it or how are they left out of it? And in particular, in a place like Chicago, where I settled, I was born here, but I settled back here in 1987 and have lived here ever since. And I've always considered myself a Chicagoan, even when I was living elsewhere. But when you think about the history here, there was not the kind of straight shot into the canon that you might get from other places. Of course, it's not a given in any way. Artists of any stripe are going to get into the record books. But here in Chicago, you had extra hurdles. And there were great musicians and great visual artists who were being ritually left out of those out of those tallies. And that interested me. So I, I thought about, for instance... Fred Anderson, great tenor player, and Vaughn Freeman, another great tenor player, both of whom lived here in Chicago, and both of whom had many peers who left Chicago and got relatively well-known, mostly in New York. These were musicians who stayed here because they had family obligations here, and they didn't want to uproot their families and move them to New York. And they were, at the time that I started really thinking about this in the late 80s, basically unknown outside of Chicago, largely unknown outside of Chicago, except for among great specialists. And so that became really, really interesting to me. And I, I started focusing on that. And I would say that fascination and in a sense that kind of the urgency that I felt around redressing that ended up being fuel for an awful lot of what I do now and what I've done over the intervening years.
There's a lot of steps between becoming a fan of a certain artist and interested in their output and getting to the point where you're involved in researching or writing about a subject or producing product around that artist or booking shows, creating gallery exhibitions, etc. And for the sake of trying to cover some different areas than maybe you've covered in previous interviews, I'm going to encourage our listeners, because you are so prolific and so well documented, if listeners haven't already done their homework, to go to johncorbett.info. There's a lot of previous interviews that you've done around all of the subjects that you touch on, but Sun Ra as well. You've got a lot of books on Sun Ra, and we're going to assume that our audience is pretty much up to speed on those things. So you've said many times that your entryway into to the world of the Sun Ra Orchestra was the 1978 Languidity album. Yep. So what were the steps in between Languidity that enticed you and grew your level of interest and fandom that would ultimately precipitate in being involved in rescuing and protecting the effects of Alton Abraham and then getting involved in releasing CDs, DVDs, organizing the Pathways to Unknown Worlds exhibit? Etc. How did that grow? Well, it grew organically and rather quickly. I think I got the 1978 Languidity album not that long after it came out. Might have been 79 at the latest, maybe 1980. Yeah, 79 or 80 before I went to college. By the time I was in college, I was actively collecting Sun Ra records and having the opportunity to see Sun Ra play with some regularity. So starting, I think the first time I saw Ra in concert would have been probably 1982. And I saw the orchestra play numerous times from then until 1993 when Ra passed. And my, but important things in that process that you're asking about happened early on. And one of them was that I was fortunate to be able to interview Ra in 1986. And that was a bit of a fluke. Uh, I was already busily interviewing people at that point. And it was a little bit the arrogance of youth (laughs) where you recognize that there aren't a lot of other people doing this at that moment that did not feel like there were an adequate number of people doing it. And they were also not asking some of the questions I was interested in. So I thought I would do it. And a radio disc jockey got the assignment, who knew almost nothing about Ra, got the assignment to go interview uh, Sun Ra after a gig at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island. And knowing that I was a DJ, a jazz DJ, um, this was a news DJ or news uh, uh, reporter for the uh, radio station that I worked at, WBRU. And he just, he asked if I wanted to come along. And as it turned out, he didn't really have anything to ask. And I ended up taking over the interview and doing the interview. And the interview was probably an hour and a half or maybe two hours long. Sun Ra was incredibly generous. John Gilmore and June Tyson were there in the room with us the whole time. And what I found remarkable knowing something about their history together was that these two musicians who had clearly heard him say a lot of the stuff that he was telling me over and over again, sat and listened and nodded and smiled and felt like 
it felt to me like they were very honored to be in his presence, even though they lived with him and played with him all the time. And that was very impressive to me. And I was incredibly honored to be able to interview him at that point. So that was great inspiration at that point to kind of move forward and continue to dig around and find out what more I could find out about Ra. And really from then, it was a matter of buying every record I could find. When I moved to Chicago, I became friendly with Von Freeman, who had briefly played with Ra in the 50s. And almost every path I was on led in one way or another back to Ra. And I began to realize what an important figure, even though he was very little known in Chicago relative to other bands that were performing here and relative to how industrious uh, he and his various outfits were, you know, Ra, Ra wasn't as well known as a lot of the other bands, so band leaders. So but so many things led back to him in one way or another. And so I kind of took it upon myself at that point also to try to meet up with all the different people that he played with and interview them because it seemed like the opportunities to have conversations with Lucius Randolph, for instance, or Hattie Randolph, or a number of these people who worked with them pretty extensively. Bugs Cochran, for instance, a great drummer who's still playing and played with him as a very young man. Uh, those opportunities were... Uh, had a limited lifespan. And so it was important to take it upon myself to have those conversations every chance I got. And so I did. And and from there, it, it grew. I mean, the big moment for me after that, I'd been writing about Ra. My first book came out in 1994, Extended Play, and it had that interview that I did with him in it. And it also had an interview that I did with Alton Abraham that was occasioned by a conversation that came out of an article I wrote for Downbeat Magazine about Ra's death and the uncertain place that that left the, his estate and uh, his legacy. Um, and Alton actually cold called me out of that. And we had a great conversation and that led immediately to meeting up and I met with him a number of times, but I did an interview with him that first time that we met. And uh, that was crucial for me in drawing me deeper into the world of Ra, Ra's material, etc. And, and understanding, again, that so many lines of development trace back in one way or another to Ra here in Chicago. And um, so then that also, uh, uh, that led to meeting with him, led to knowing him. And I guess we would have met in, I'm trying to remember the timeline here, we would have met in about 1993, I believe. Yeah, because it would have been right after Ra died. And then he died in 1999. And in 2000, through a long process that I've chronicled in some depth, I ended up my wife and I ended up acquiring the contents of his home. And I would say that if, if you, the question that you asked in the first place about kind of how do you get drawn into it, that's the place where you peer over the edge and then you fall forward, you know, over the cliff <laughs> and you're deep in the ravine of Sun Ra. And I have to say about three years into that process, 
uh, I had to take a little bit of a break and step away from it for a minute because I found it so, I thought, found myself so compulsively relating everything that I was seeing and thinking about to uh, Ra and Ra's writing, Ra's thinking, Ra's music, that I had to back away from it a little bit uh, to get some perspective. So at that point, I'd gone from being someone who was uh, a satellite to being someone who had, where the gravitational force had become very, very strong. It's interesting to hear that you were actively interviewing musicians related to Sun Ra's work in Chicago, like Lucius Randolph, Hattie Randolph, who, as far as I'm aware, you know, there are really no other interviews documented. At the time that you were doing it, was it purely an exercise of self-learning or did you have a larger project in mind that you were driving to with these interviews, like a book or something like that, that ultimately, you know, didn't get published? Because as far as I'm aware, those interviews are not published, correct? Yeah, most of those interviews, uh, some people are squirrely about being taped, and uh, some people are more forthcoming if there isn't a tape recorder going. So some of those interviews were just things that I did very much just personally going over to Lucius's house, for instance, and meeting with him and Hattie there. I ended up doing a panel discussion that on which I shared the stage with, with Hattie Randolph. And that was also fantastic. Very dear person. And I got to know Robert Barry quite well. But most of those, and I, and I took notes when I was doing those interviews, but they were not the kinds of interviews that was deep background as far as I was concerned. And I was trying to get a lot of facts straight and trying to dig up things firsthand from people. You know, I had a long, I had a long meeting with Robert Barry at one point in which we got talking about Ra's time in Calumet City playing at strip clubs. And although there had already been, a, in 1987, I think, David Dave Hoekstra had written quite a nice article. It was in the Chicago Tribune, and it was not something that was widely circulated. And I knew very little about what he was talking about, and it was incredible to me. So I started trying to find people who had played with Ra in those circumstances, those working circumstances, and tried to document as much of that as I could before for those guys were gone and Robert's gone now. Bugs Cochran played with him down there in Calumet City and he's still alive and still playing. So I've had a chance to talk to him a little bit about it. I think he only played on one occasion or maybe two with, with Ra down there. I mean, it's such an interesting moment, you know, and I hear within the Ra world, you sometimes hear people who make a dividing line between the quote unquote more conservative work of the period up to, let's say, 1960. 
two or three, and then the more ad, more adventurous stuff that he's doing after he gets to New York. I don't I don't see it that way at all. I, I think there is definitely a difference between those two periods. But I think that the work that he was doing in Chicago was so interesting. And he was working within, within a different set of constraints from the ones that he would encounter once he got to New York. Um, but it's such a, such a rich and interesting period. And to think about all of the different people that he was coming in contact with in, you know, jam sessions that included, you know, Coleman Hawkins and, and then private sessions with people like, Stuff Smith. I mean, it's so interesting to think about all of that. Yeah, such a fertile ground for so many varying types of talent concentrated in a pretty intense period of time and occurring with great frequency. I mean, it, it, to think about what it would have been like to be able to be a part of those crowds and have access to that as it was happening is, is really pretty mind-boggling. And I think you make a really interesting point that I I would extend kind of the continuum of Sun Ra's exploration and invention back from Chicago to Birmingham. And I think that that's another period that's been largely overlooked as far as placing the invention that's happening within the period of time and comparing it to the other types of musics and art forms that were happening in the Sun Ra's story, it sometimes is told and appears that, and this is by, you know, Sun Ra's own seeming invention himself, that he magically appeared fully formed uh, in Chicago. But that's really not the case, that there were 20 plus years of very diligent work and learning and exploration that led to him being able to arrive in Chicago and kind of tell this myth of seemingly appearing, you know, from another dimension, fully formed in what would have been his late 40s, as far as planet Earth years. Um, And that that was really just a blip on the continuum. And that it does a disservice to appreciating his work and his work as a whole to really divvy it up into arbitrary periods like that. And I think you could extend it out even further into his later years in the 80s and, and early 90s, which often are dismissed comparatively artistically, you know, to the to the 50s, 60s, and, and 70s. But to my ears, he was still involved with the same intent of ex- exploration, but it was just framed with a different set of experience and, and maybe an evolving story to tell. So um, I, I think you, you, that's a really interesting perspective. Well, I, I tell offer. to follow up on what you're saying, I, I agree completely. I think one of the things that gets... In, in some ways, actually, the Chicago period is the period that has the greatest shape in terms of our biographical understanding of Ra. It was the that period up until when they, let's say from 1950 five until until about 1969 or so or 70 there's this kind of great story to tell about him and it's also very well documented in terms of lots and lots of recordings and the recordings have landmark qualities this is the first one where there's a mood this is the first one you know etc there's each of them has their own kind of place in that narrative and then it gets very general 
And it's disappointing to me that a little more clarity hasn't been brought to bear on understanding the way that the orchestra changed or the different kind of modalities that it got into in the later years, even the years of the 70s. Because, you know, what happens then is there are lots and lots of very drum-heavy jams that have a lot of what the Red Crayola would call freeform freakouts, like very intense improvised sections that would lead to one or another of the well-known anthemic songs. But the thing is that there are landmark, landmark performances along the way that could be used to tell that story in a, in a slightly more organized way. And I, I still don't think that's been done adequately yet. And it's easy to do with the later period. The difficulty with the period with extending it back is that we have basic, almost no documents of that period. Period of his own music, you know, before the Chicago period, we have we have nothing except for a couple of compositions, which really don't give us a great view of what those tantalizing titles that he had in the early 40s, late 30s suggest. I think there's a composition called Fission and one called, I can't remember whether it's called Thermonuclear or something like that. There are these science titles that suggest a kind of great modernity at that point. But we don't know what those pieces sound like. And so that history back then is a little bit devoid of the kind of detail that we get in the 1950s when recording becomes a major feature, when he ultimately becomes obsessed with recording, when Alton goes out of his way to make sure that there are recording sessions and putting begins to put records together, a number of which don't come out for quite some time, but the very earliest of them come out while the band is still in Chicago. So I think that is easy to articulate when there are these documents. And it would be much easier to tell the story later than 1967, 68 in greater detail and with more refinement than it's been told so far. Another aspect of the story that is, I think, largely overlooked is the larger organization that was around and supported Sun Ra in Chicago, Alton Abraham, James Bryant, and I've never been confident of the pronunciation, but is it Thamay, Thama? Thamai, I think. I, I, I believe Thamai. Yeah. Right, the Thamai Research Organization. And I first became aware of your name in relation to your 1994 book called Extended Play, sounding off from John Cage to Dr. Funkenstein, which is an excellent book overall. But the one interview that I revisit 
year after year is your interview with Alton Abraham. And as far as I'm aware, it's the only extended published interview that Alton ever granted. And I think it gives a great perspective into the larger support structure that facilitated Sun Ra to accomplish some of the things that you just mentioned, be documented, have recording sessions, to have released and to some extent distributed recordings. So everybody should go out and buy Extended Play and read that interview if they're unfamiliar with it. Can you talk a little bit more, John, about your experiences with Alton, that interview in particular, but also maybe other interviews that haven't been released and your perspective on Alton's contribution to Sun Ra's continuing success and getting him set up with a support system to succeed and your perspective on the role that he plays in in that larger story that we might take for granted. Absolutely. I think Alton Abraham's role is so crucial in understanding the period in which Ra became a public figure. He was reputedly quite shy. Um, He was working as an arranger and pianist, but And he, when Alton and he started working together in the early 1950s, he was talking about wanting to put a band together that would be a rehearsal band. And Alton told me in the conversation, the first conversation that we had, uh, that Ra had told him he wanted to have a rehearsal band that would be just a rehearsal band for 10 years until they were ready to perform publicly, which is, of course, if you're dealing with your manager, which by that point Alton had become, that's not a very enticing or even feasible proposition. So it was really Alton, if we think about all of the things that Alton was either directly or indirectly responsible for, he encouraged Ra to change his name because Ra was uncomfortable with his uh, earth name and wanted, always felt that he had another name. And Alton encouraged him to actually make it official and change it, which he did. He drew the band out of this potential seclusion. He helped obtain great musicians for Ra to work with. And he was such an interesting character in and of himself. I mean, he was also highly intellectual. He was a uh, one of the first African-American radiologists in Illinois. So, and he was, so he was already very deeply engaged in science, but he was also really interested in philosophy and he was a mystic. And so the first time that I met with Alton, he brought James Bryant along, who was his sidekick in a way. I mean, it sounds demeaning to say that, but it really was. He was somebody who was his assistant, let's say. And they told me both of them had had experiences with UFOs and that that was one of the things that both of them had really enjoyed sharing with Sun Ra was that they had all had these extraterrestrial experiences and that they could talk freely about that. They didn't have to be reserved. So that was such an interesting recognition that this cadre of people who were working together, they had a public side, which was the side that was interested in promoting the music. And then they had a private side, which was this research 
this, uh, not the music research side of it, but the cultural and scientific and literary research side of it, um, which was a secret society. And, you know, which they told me, I mean, Alton told me about it, that it had been a secret society. And then when we ultimately were going through all of the materials, we found a ledger and a book of uh, esoteric, a dictionary of esoteric terms that they had been working on that he had also told me about. I was kind of shocked that we found this in all of these materials, but it was there. Um, and it had in the back a ledger of the participants in the secret society. So that's, um, that's also part of the uh, official. And at the top of it was Herman Poole Blunt. He was at that point still calling himself Herman Blunt. So it was probably in the period before 1951, 52. Alton was such an interesting person to be around too. I mean, he was a really, really kind of, uh, he was very tall, very big bellowing voice, very, very warm fellow and very sharp. And I will never forget the first time I met him. He came in, we, he, I, I said, why well, don't, I'll come to where you want to meet. I'll come to your turf. And he said, no, no, I want to meet uh, near you, someplace you feel comfortable. And I said, okay. So I proposed a cafe and we showed up. I, I showed up a little early. I was at the table with a cup of coffee and he and James Bryant walked in and he opened up his um, case that he had brought and pulled out some papers and put one of the papers in front of me and said, do you recognize this? And it was the name change papers that had changed Sun Ra's name from Herman Poole Blunt to Lasonia Ra. Wow. And I said, of course I do. And he said, uh, I wanted you to know I am who I say I am. And I said, I have no, I had no reason to disbelieve you, but I surely believe you now. And by the way, there's a cop, there's a copy shop right next door. Can we go make a copy of this immediately? And he said, sure. And I, I ran out and made a copy of it and ran back. And then we did the interview. That's great that you got a copy because that original document didn't end up making it through into the Alton Abraham collection that you you ended up rescuing from the dumpster, right? That Correct. ended up going missing in between. Yes. Yeah, that and other, some other documents that he had in that, in that uh, case with him that wasn't there. Take my hand I'm a stranger in paradise All lost in a wonderland And starry-eyed, that's the danger in paradise for mortals who stand beside an angel like you. Clearly, Sun Ra was a brilliant energized, self-motivated individual who would have been capable of accomplishing something great in any scenario. But it seems clear to me that regardless of where his public career evolved to and the things that he later achieved after he left Chicago, that this larger community and this organization that he was involved with, with Alton and 
James Bryant and others really facilitated perhaps and maybe gave him focus to go on to those greater later successes. Do you have a thought about anything locally in Chicago, artistically, in the culture that would additionally have helped to facilitate this? Could this have happened anywhere else but Chicago? That's a great question. I'm inclined to say that it was very specific to Chicago. And I believe that it was influenced by and, you know, all sorts of things, people, things, ideas, music coming from other places. It was not hermetic to Chicago in any way. But there were aspects of the seen here that lent themselves to Ra having a good amount of latitude to do the things that he wanted to do, explore the things that he wanted to do, explore. But there's things that are still relevant that, you know, rents were lower than they are in certain places. You know, there were lots of gigging opportunities for musicians here. And so, you know, Alton could get them work in a lot of different contexts on the north side, on the south side, um, in clubs, for dances, at the University of Chicago, or uh, you know, in, in a classroom. There were all sorts of different kinds of things that could happen. And that variety might be special to that period in Chicago. Plus you had, the, you had this incredible, well-developed kind of lounge scene here that was meant that there were lots and lots of clubs on the south and west side that needed musicians to play regularly. And then you had, you know, bigger clubs as well that could have musicians and whole bands come in for longer runs. So in some ways it was very specific to Chicago. I also think the presence of the Oriental Institute, which was a resource for Ra, if we're just thinking about where he uh, his ideas percolated, um, the Field Museum and the Oriental Institute were very important places for him to go and uh, be able to touch base with ancient Egyptian artifacts, African artifacts, non-Western culture that would end up having a great presence in his work. And there was a really, you know, hugely active, independent African-American intellectual community here as well. So I think those are, those are not necessarily 100% unique to Chicago, but they came into a unique or a very special kind of constellation when in the period that Ra was here. Um, and, you know, the, the, the lounge scene died off in the 70s, you know, wouldn't have been possible even in Chicago. I don't think the conditions would have been right 10 years earlier or 15 years later. So it was that time and that place that he was able to do the things that he was doing. Plus, if you add to that the presence of a recording, a music recording infrastructure here in the form of RCA records and a bunch of different places that he could go. I found some really interesting material that I haven't written about very much yet, but in the stuff that in Alton's material, there were a group of records by a not so well-known saxophone player named Tommy Madman Jones. And our great friends at Clemson University, Robert Campbell especially, has put this incredible website together that has as one feature of it, in addition to an incredible amount of documentation of Chicago years of Sun Ra. 
material about uh, Tommy Madman Jones. Tommy Madman Jones was a very interesting figure as well because he was an early record uh, producer in the sense of his own records. So he was he was making musician-produced records at a time that that was not so frequently done. And Ra, I mean, uh, Alton was corresponding with him. So I found his old telephone number among some other things that um, Alton was writing. And I know that they corresponded about off the record, he had told me that they had corresponded about some of the things that he needed to know in order to put out some of those early singles and the very first records. So you had this, you know, you had people like that, like eccentric outliers like him, Tommy Madman Jones, great booting tenor saxophone player in the 50s and early 60s, with whom Alton was corresponding in the process of putting Saturn records together. It's very interesting because for me, so much of it comes back down to material culture and what we can glean from these artifacts that are left behind or that we discover. And about two years ago online, on eBay, actually, of all things, I found a, an amazing pamphlet for a band led by a trombonist named Morris Ellis, who was formerly with Red Saunders's band. And he had a band called Morris Ellis and his Swingmasters. And their motto was the band with the young ideas. And who's in that band? Who's in the middle of this this brochure? But Ray Blunt on piano. So there's a great picture, I think previously unseen picture of Sun Ra next to that. That's enough. Interesting. So there's all these people in here who would be like Walter Strickland is playing trumpet uh, with this band. Um, it's kind of a medium-sized band uh, that Morris Ellis was around forever. I have not been able to find any detailed information about this particular group. But inside that, when I got it, that was what I expected to get, was a program from a concert. And the concert program is for a band called The Sextet. S-E-X-T-E-T-T-E. The Sextet. This is exactly the same band that Sun Ra had at that point. Dave Young on trumpet, Charles Davis on baritone, Julian Priester on trombone, Robert Berry on drums, Wilbur Ware on bass with a pianist named Daniel Ripperton. I I wonder whether Daniel Ripperton wasn't actually Sun Ra. And the program includes, it's a full program, and the first composition is credited to Ripperton, and it's called Transaction, which would have been potentially right around the time that he wrote Transition. So I wonder about that. Now, Transition was something that related to the record company that he was making that record for. But there's another piece by Ripperton here called Kenya. And then there are compositions that are credited to John Jenkins and uh, and Priester, although Jenkins doesn't seem to be in the band. But it's so interesting to think about all of this. Now, Daniel Ripperton has one other obvious <clears throat> um, potential point of intersection, which is that Minnie Ripperton, the singer, her, she was born in Chicago and her father was a Pullman named Daniel Ripperton. But I can't find any information that suggests that he was actually a musician or a pianist. 
So we're left with these kinds of documents where we have to try to figure this out. And I, I find that so incredibly exciting and mysterious. <laughs> I'm trying to, to gather my thoughts around that. My mind's blown. Yeah, transaction obviously has potential permutations that could associate it with Sunra's type of compositional naming. And then if you have any inclination that Daniel Ripperton could be a pseudonym for Sunra, many Ripperton. Is, is one of the handful of performers that Sun Ra cited as seeing as a child being very early and lifelong influences. There's the biblical connotations of the name Daniel that yep. could be, I mean, wow. Oh, I forgot to mention one other We love thing. a mystery. Clyde Williams is credited singing. Wow. On this as well. So, so the gang's you, all there. Gang's all there. And then the, then there's a sex, so that's the sextet. And then John Jenkins apparently has his own band that he leads for uh, a short segment of the beginning of the second set. And then Clyde Williams comes in and sings smack dab in the middle in summertime. Uh, and then the sextet takes it out with an original composition called My Prelude by Daniel Ripperton, a trombone solo by Julian Priester and a composition by Priester called Getaway. Uh, and in the very end, it says, uh, Finis Coronat Opus, the end crowns the work. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so uh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, got, I've got goosebumps. Wow, I, I didn't expect, didn't see that coming. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Just, wow, fantastic. My pleasure. Fantastic. I thought I would pull something out that might be, uh, <laughs> might, might be a, a surprise. Yeah, well, there's, there's so many tangents there to follow up on as well. And you refer to Robert Campbell's website, which is so voluminous and doesn't have any evident navigation. So it's very easy to miss pages like the one that you just referred to. Well, it's, uh, you know, it just keeps if you, if you dive into the section on Tommy Madman Jones, I mean, those aspects of it are so fun. Uh, so Tommy Madman Jones also, his record label was called M&M Records, which was for Mad and Man, <laughs> which is in itself hilarious and amazing. And then, you know, I've worked with a lot of European improvisers. That's been one of the one of the main features of things that I've done here in Chicago is bring Europeans here and work on getting some Chicagoans and Americans uh, over to play with Europeans, creating a dialogue. And so I know a lot of the Dutch players quite well. And at one point, I was talking to, I'm pretty sure it was Toby Delius, Tobias Delius, a great tenor player and clarinetist who's German originally, but who lives in Amsterdam. And uh, we were talking about Tommy Madman Jones. And he said, Tommy Madman Jones lived in Amsterdam. He moved there in the 70s and opened a fried chicken joint. And he would, he cooked the chicken, but he would have his saxophone on while he was cooking. And if somebody asked, he would play. I mean, you <laughs> can't make this kind of stuff up. It's just, it's, it's bigger than life. It absolutely is. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Black sky and blue is time for romance, for Time for love. The 
stars stay bright So let there be light with love I know that a love will fly Will last always This all leads up in the story to 1999 when Alton Abraham left the planet and in the following years his former home was in the situation where all of his personal effects were evidently being thrown in the dumpster which just to think about it sends a shiver up your spine and you tell the story in such a graphic and tangible way in in your book Vinyl Freak Love Letters to a Dying Medium everyone should just go straight there and read the story in your own words. But what happened was that you received an email chain sent by bassist Mike Watt alerting the local community that would be interested that what appeared to be or what they thought were Sunra's effects but were really Alton's and, and you recognized that were being thrown away. And you managed to save what you could and you through the process of years of, of hard work and, and diligence found a permanent home for these effects. And those two places are the Alton Abraham collection at the uh, University of Chicago, which to my understanding houses most of the paper and printed components uh, of Alton's collection. And then the recorded media are a part of the creative audio archive and specifically the Sunrise L. Saturn collection, which is a part of the greater ESS uh, Experimental Sound Studios organization. And through preserving those effects, you've been executive producer for releasing several unique unheard recordings via atavistic records, as well as some deeper catalog releases that weren't in print uh, at the time. You released through White Walls publications uh, with your partners, three excellent books that document and serve as a catalog to the Pathways to Unknown World. World's exhibition that happened in Chicago. And I'm sure everybody that's listening to this is familiar with at least some of that work and what came out of it. So I don't want to get into documenting each of those releases uh, because we could be talking for days. There are a couple things that over the years I've kind of taken away from all of these collective efforts that I think are right in your wheelhouse that I, I'd like to talk on a little bit. And that is Sun Ra as the artist. And I don't mean the performing artist or the recording artist, the artist in the visionary sense who explored and utilized multiple media, but specifically, I think what is showcased, especially in the exhibition and the books so well is the culture and exercise of the graphic arts to support the vision of the music. Can you kind of talk about 
your thoughts of number one, where as an educator and someone who is well-versed in art history and the artistic culture of Chicago, can you speak to Sun Ra's place within the greater art history as well as the Chicago culture of art and the works that were represented in the Pathways show as well as the accompanying books? Sure. The You know, Ra had a totalizing vision. And I remember in the first interview that I did with him in 86, he explained that the costumes and the backdrops and all of the different dancing and fire eating and all of that, as far as he was concerned, all of that was music. So for him, the common denominator of all of his artistic activity was music, but it wasn't all sonic music. It all was vibrations that were coming together, being orchestrated in one way or another. And I've always kept that in my mind when I've been thinking about these different activities that he was involved in. Rod didn't make a lot of graphic work himself. He did make important record covers and he did do magic squares and he did a variety of drawing exercises. There are sketchbooks full of his ideas for record covers and things like that, or, or inner labels. And those are really interesting in and of themselves in terms of automatic processes and things that we could relate to other aspects of the Western avant-garde tradition, although I don't think for him that that's where they're coming from. But he probably knew well, he was well aware of surrealism and well aware of uh, automatic writing and different things like that. But I think he was thinking about them as music. And I think he was thinking about them in a way as a kind of controlled improvisation. So if you look at the cover of Other Planes of There, which is a cover that he made, he designed, you you can see it having kind of vortex, kind of vortical musical aspect that I think you can think of analogs in his music and various aspects of his music, particularly from the period in which that drawing was made, which was around 1965. So I see that as uh, that bridge. If we're going to look at in terms of Chicago, there was a very well-developed, independent African-American design community here in Chicago. And I think that the a lot of the visual aspect of his early record covers, for instance, comes back to Alton and him tapping into some, you know, super independent figures in that scene, like this kind of mysterious guy named Claude Dangerfield, who made a bunch of the early record designs and designs that were used quite a lot later than they were originally made because the chronology of the recording of the records and then their subsequent release is more complex than it seems at its face. So not so many of those records came out at the time that they were recorded. Uh, Most of them came out later and then were put together as packages. And there is even a single record cover that has, that was sent back to Alton. It's addressed to Alton from Ra and Ra just writes in ballpoint on the back of it. What about unused Claude cover? Question mark. So they're thinking about that. Probably the answer to a question, what are we going to use on the cover of this record? So there's these little clues to all of that about you know, sitting in all of this material that tell us that this was part of a grassroots community of designers, and then ultimately not just designers, but the people who were printing the record covers. Sometimes they would print them themselves. 
but then eventually they became offset print and they would go to local offset printers, uh, African-American run businesses in the South side community near where they were living. And we know that because there are receipts from those companies. So this is, it's, it gives the picture of this whole set of different forces being brought together in order to make this image that Sun Ra wanted made. And it's a kind of much broader, bigger picture than just a guy who wants to make spacey stuff or someone who wants to promote their new record. It's a, it's a bigger vision than that. As we know later when he got more resources and got access to you know a filmmaker who would make a biopic and things like that, that as soon as he got access to that, he used it. But in, even with these limited resources and limited funds, they could put a lot of these things together in a bigger picture way. So I think that's, you know, that's what's one of the things that's really so exciting about the Chicago period is you see all of this information, a lot of the stuff that will later become very familiar to us as Sunroth fans. Right. And that necessity to do it yourself at that time and to work within the community and to perhaps work in mediums or techniques that these individuals like All In, Sun Ra, even Claude Dangerfield might not have been experienced in ended up producing art that was, at least from my perspective, greater in impact than most anything else that followed when they had access to larger budgets, quote unquote, professional artists or more professional printing processes that by that necessity and that that do-it-yourself sense, it created the more impactful expressions. The other component of the collection, other than the paper and graphic, photographic ephemera that are in the University of Chicago Alton Abraham collection, are the sound recordings that are housed in the Creative Audio Archive. It would be very nice for people to be able to dip into the collection in a more survey-like way, but we've really set it up so that people can, if there are researchers who want to come do uh, work on any of that material, you know, it's, it's as well as it can be, it's been parsed uh, what's in the collection. I think that actually still needs a lot of refinement. I was only so involved in that process because that was a huge process, just getting the material all transferred from all different kinds of magnetic tape to a digital format that could be then migrated as needed to keep it safe. You know, that was a years long project in and of itself and a very costly one that the Experimental Sound Studio took on themselves. And that material is all now digitized. So would be very nice for people to be able to hear some of that, but there are a lot of different reasons that that has to be kept in a limited, limitedly accessible manner. So if you want to do research on that material, you can come and you can do it. You can sit and listen to it and take notes on it. We've always maintained with both of the archives that Terry and I gave to these institutions that it needs to be accessible to people who want to come do the kind of work that you're doing, for instance, 
or that Paul Youngquist did when he wrote his book. He went and spent a lot of time in the University of Chicago in Regenstein Library working on it. So it's very important to us for that to be the case, but it's not so easy to have the kind of window of accessibility um, in a more public way without it becoming just getting, just turning into public domain. And as I say, there's a, a lot of reasons that that can't happen that way. Understood. As someone who has spent time with that audio collection, there is a finding aid that's available online through the CAA website. But do you have a general sense? We're talking anywhere between 400 and 600 individual entries, a variety of different types of recorded sound. For a Sunra music fan, do you have a sense of within that bulk, how much of it would actually be listenable and of interest to maybe a more conventional Sunra record fan? Or is it just because of the nature of daydreaming and people probably thinking about this collection and assuming that there's 400 unreleased records in there? Right. How much of it is actually, for lack of a better word, of interest to a, a more general Sunra fan and not a scholar? Some of it, but not an enormous amount of it. I would say, and I don't know percentage-wise. I mean, I can't actually say that I've listened through all of it. It's it's hundreds of hours of recordings. And, you know, you have everything from highly distorted early recordings that are of great interest, but could not possibly be of interest to somebody who just wants to sit down and put a record on. But they're interesting because they, some of them have compositions that we've never heard before that are clearly Raw's things like that. Or there's a recording of the Budland band from 1956, which is very similar to the band that I just talked about, um, the Sextet with Julian Priester. But it appears to be a recording of them, of Ra, actually shuttling around on the tape, listening to the tape. So just as a track gets really cooking, suddenly it shuttles forward and then starts again. <laughs> and then just as it starts to get... Uh... It shuttles back. And then you, so you're sitting and listening through these things, just praying for a complete take or enough of a take that it would make sense. So there's things like that that are very frustrating and enticing, but certainly would not be material that you would, for instance, think about putting out on a record. And I think your point is well taken that it is not 400 records sitting there. It is nothing like that. There are things that are really exciting. There are items in there that are that fill out existing records in a really interesting way. So for instance, there are several hours of recordings from Slugs with Pharaoh Sanders and Black Herald. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the band. It's definitely Pharaoh Sanders. And on it, it says Slugs. It's pretty clear that that's, that's what it is. And they were recording these things in every possible configuration. So you have a, you know, it's a quarter inch tape and you have, so it has potentially four tracks. Normally you would have that divided into two tracks going one way and two tracks going the other, but they would do single, they would lay to save tape, uh, a single take going the entire, let's say 90 minutes uh, one direction because they were if they were trying to preserve tape they might do it at three and a third three and three quarters 
speed on one quarter of the of this quarter inch tape and then do the same thing back and the same thing back again so that it have four times 90 minutes of material um, and it's super compressed and it's super it's not like big spacious stereo sound it's very mono and very it's very as i say like compressed but there's lots of it and so for those of us who think that material is really interesting from whatever that is 1964 suddenly you're listening to a real expanse of associated material do i think it's is it is it material for another record it's pretty pretty closely related to what's on the released record of that but it's different versions different takes etc so it fills out what we already know and what we already have in interesting ways and i think there is a good bit of material in there that is like that there's lots of rehearsal material as well that is very interesting from the standpoint of seeing what their what their working process was uh, when for instance they don't have a bassist or a drummer they're just working through head charts with the horns things like that but nobody would really want that as a record i don't think so you know that's just a taste of what there is and then there's like you know there's the really fascinating tapes of sunra arguing with a with a local reverend <laughs> probably from the 50s, whom he called to basically pick a philosophical fight with uh, or a biblical fight with, stuff like that. And there's uh, answering machine tapes and a lot of stuff. All the things that were really private of any kind are not part of the of the official archive. And how much of it do you think, you know, I think people would look at it based on the name and based on the power of, of Sun Ra's name and output that they would assume that it's all Sun Ra material, but this was all in Abraham's collection, how much of it actually is Alton's recorded archives and things that, that he wanted to document that he found of interest that actually only have a distant relation to Sun Ra's music? There's some. There are recordings, uh, there are church recordings that he made after Ra left in the early 60s. Saturn was available to go do uh, mobile recordings. So we'd come to your church and record your choir or, or your pastor. Um, so there are, I don't know, maybe 20 or 25 recordings like that. There are also some early 60s post-raw in Chicago jazz recordings by different groups, Willie Pickens, a handful of folks. And those are really interesting and those have not really been adequately studied yet, but they're, they would also tell a very interesting story of the, the lounge scene in that period. And then there are some tapes that are raw related, but you know, there are the master tapes for some of the singles that were by other people for Saturn or for Repito. But really, the vast majority of it is raw. And then there are cassettes of the lectures that he gave in at Berkeley, um, which are also very interesting because he was not interested in having, uh, he wouldn't even let students take notes at those lectures, which is an interesting technique for a teacher, I think. Um, but uh, I mean, it requires a level of attention that you probably would have a hard time getting from your students these days. I appreciate that insight that you've given in, into that collection. I 
I think that, and granted, we are a, a relatively small, dedicated uh, crew of people that would find this interesting and want to listen to those 400 tapes or think they want to listen to those 400 tapes. The one really impactful thing that I took away from your recounting of, of the experience in your Vinyl Freak book was that we might, from the outside, perceive this experience that you've had as a dream come true. And I, I'm sure that in, in many, many ways it was. But I'm curious, in retrospect, you had mentioned that you needed to take a break. And I think anybody that spends a lot of time with Sunrise Music can relate to that because it gives a lot of energy, but it also requires a lot of energy. In retrospect, with that idea that you've been able to kind of live the the Sun Ra fans' dream uh, with your discovery and your access, what's the the lesson that you took away from it all in retrospect as far as would you do it all again? Was it worth it, the personal cost? Because you, you speak to that pretty explicitly in your book. And I'm just kind of curious, in, in retrospect, what's your perspective on the whole experience? Yeah, I'd do it again, for sure, if I was able to. It, it, it took a lot of energy and uh, a lot of focused consideration. And I was fortunate to have my wife partner be also extremely dedicated and very thoughtful. And we worked on doing all of the things that we did with it together. And we worked on the show that we curated out of it with the curator, Anthony Elms, and having his counsel was was important. And, and to be honest, right out of the gate, as soon as this happened, I reached out to people that I trusted uh, to ask their advice Uh, a lot of ethical questions that came up about how to deal with it and all of that kind of stuff. So George Lewis was a person that I sought out immediately to talk to a number of people. And I, and you know, what I take away from it is that we are all a big community. I mean, not only Sunrob, but I mean, those of us who think that culture matters at all are part of a community. And it's easy to take that for granted if you're inside that community. But there are a lot of people who actually don't think that culture matters very much or think that it's a trivial thing and it doesn't have an impact. And for those of us who think that it does and that it is, we need to caretake it and we need to pay attention to it and we have to actually give something of ourselves to it. And so I felt I take that away from it that although it was exhausting and there was a moment where just to preserve my identity and my own self sanity, I needed to step back from it. That also had to do with the realization that I had that while it's so obvious, it takes a minute. If you're, if you get into the the Sun Ra world, you know, there's that old saying, if you buy the premise, you buy the bit. You can become, it's easy to forget that Ra was a messianic figure. And, but it's absolutely true. He set himself up as a messianic figure, as a savior, right? I've come back, come to you to help you save this planet. And because I've been told to, I didn't want to, but I had to. So I'm here to do it. That in itself is uh, a heavy revelation. And if we relate that to what's going on in the world right now, not to make it too topical, but it is extremely, it's so relevant to what's going on in the world right now. And although Ra was often using these kind of concretized metaphors, these metaphors that were that were quite wild, but that he treated as reality. So there was no distance. If you, you know, metaphor is usually something standing in for something, 
something else. He took it as being, this is that, right? And, you know, if you look at something like his response to Three Mile Island, right? And the birth of the song Nuclear War and his response, that was for those of us who grew up listening to Ra and Ra sort of talking about outer space and talking about traveling the spaceways and getting away from this planet to then suddenly become extremely dedicated to a kind of social activist role uh, was very surprising to me at that point. You know, so it's not after the end of the world in that sense where he'd been singing that suddenly it's about like, this is real. We have to take care of this. And he was warning constantly that if we don't treat our planet better, there are going to be dire circumstances. And I have to say, I think that's where we are now. So to play that little game, I wonder what he'd be thinking. It would be amazing to see how he would reply to and respond to all of the things that are going on right now. I think it's very important to bring what is sometimes this historical perspective and and journey today, being fans of Sun Ra into the moment. And like you, I am constantly reminded of his, his words and his message. And yeah, it's easy and fun to wonder how he would be responding responding to today, but I would actually say that he, (laughs) in many ways, he already did. There's so many things that were prescient and um, ahead of their time. incredible fortune to be in New York just as the pandemic was kicking off here at an art fair. And it was at the time that the orchestra played at Town Hall. And so my partner at the gallery, Jim Dempsey, and the artist, Josiah McElhenney, uh, who's a major Sun Ra fan, all went and saw the orchestra. And I have to say, they are playing so spectacularly well right now. And the energy and the feeling in the room, it was an amazing feeling. And it felt to me like that continuation of the very serious project that Sun Ra had. I don't think Marshall wants... I think he sees that his version of what they need to do is a little different from what Sun Ra's was, and he's not trying to emulate Sun Ra, which would be a mistake in the sense of the gravity of what Sun Ra was talking about and the way in which he could be incredibly fierce. You know, Sun Ra's approach was a very fierce approach, um, a fierce deity, I would say, in the Buddhist sense, where uh, I think uh, Marshall's approach is very different from that. It's very, it's much lighter and it's much more about love and it's about a certain kind of radiance. And that's a really wonderful thing to have in the world right now. And to have that continue the energy of the orchestra is really great. And I think it's great that it's different, you know? Yeah, I I completely agree. And Marshall has done a spectacular job taking over the leadership of the orchestra and progressing it throughout the years. And he is just a shining example at 96 years of age of what can be achieved in, in a life dedicated, as you said previously previously to art and culture and the betterment of the planet, not only recognizing the heritage and what you've learned along the way, but honoring your inner voice, because that is one thing, as you mentioned,
one that the Marshall Allen directed orchestra does very well. And what I think is unfortunate when they get repeatedly classified as a repertoire band, that it's a living, breathing, evolving extension of the Sun Ra-led orchestra. And it has grown and evolved with the times. And it's wonderful to see Marshall out there playing. It's wonderful that we've had a chance to hear just a very few of Marshall's many original compositions within the orchestra framework. New audiences and new younger musicians are being made a part of that collective so that hopefully it can keep going as long as our race is uh, here to play music. Yeah. I mean, Tara Middleton, I mean, she is just spectacular. Uh, we, you know, we could go through the whole band. There, yeah, yeah. there are so many shining examples of great musicians, but also great musicians that seem to have a deep affinity for what the orchestra and, and Sun Ra's legacy means. So it is a beautiful thing. Thank you for mentioning that because I think, yeah, I mean, again, I, I, like I, all the things we've talked about that are largely overlooked, I definitely think that on a larger scale, the orchestra as it exists now is taken for granted for how great and impactful they really are. Yeah, totally fantastic and so inspiring. And, uh, you know, there are just like they, this guy, uh, James Stewart, I mean, unbelievably strong player, mm-hmm. you know, I, that and, and a really strong feeling that this is another guy like John Gilmore who could have a very different identity on his own as a leader doing whatever, but who is at the service of this band. Yeah, well, I, you're right. We could go on. And yeah, it's beautiful. said makes me want to ask one more question. The Pathway to Unknown Worlds exhibition that you and your partners curated and was the first public presentation of the Alton Abraham collection. I think it's easy for myself and I realize that I'm guilty of it and why I want to touch upon this is that it's easy for me to assume that the audience for this exhibition and this material are Sun Ra fans, but you're part of a greater local community. You're part of a greater worldwide artistic community other than the the Sun Ra fans that had hopes and, and of what they were going to see and, and kind of had a sense of what they were going to see. What was the impression of people that are supporters of art and culture and, and go see these shows as a part of what they do and didn't know anything about Sun Ra? What was the reception and impressions of the, of the greater art-loving community to the work? We got a lot of feedback about the show. I think 
think the vast majority of people who went to see the show, and it was extremely well attended in its Chicago incarnation, and also again in Philadelphia, of course, I think the vast majority were people who were not Sun Ra fans. They might be people who knew something about Sun Ra, or I think a lot of people also didn't. But you know, Ra has this way of being, I think, of being accessible to almost anyone if you just open yourself up to it. And I, that was what we got was a lot of people who were saying, there's so much more to this than I ever knew. I saw Sun Ra in 1979 and I always thought he was just this wild man. But then there's this whole other level to what he's about. You know, that I think understanding it as a project that's much bigger than playing wild music, you know, was one of the main pieces of feedback that we got from people who know something but didn't know a lot about rock is that it was, uh, first of all, that it had the kinds of roots that it had and that it had all of these other kinds of connotations. It's hard to say how people, how people react to something like that exhibition, except just to say what the people have told us. And the fact that there were people, I mean, there were the Sun Ra fans. There is a guy who went to the show every single day was open. And the people at the front desk called and like at a certain moment, maybe a month in, were like, should we be worried? <laughs> and I said, absolutely not. That is a dedicated Sun Ra fan who is actually learning every single thing in that show. Uh, you know, and I think you had people who were like that who already knew vast amounts about the work, but you also had lots of people to whom it was a new thing. And it was something that the whole idea of space and jazz was a completely foreign idea. The idea of modernity in jazz, aside from quote unquote modern jazz, was a different idea for, for a lot of them. And then the concept that it would have all of these other connotations, that it would have something to do with Afrocentrism on the one hand and separatism uh, in one way. And then on the other hand, that it might have to do with a kind of, that it might have this broader connection to philosophical and historical contentions about the role of ancient Egypt in Western civilization. That was stuff that was there if you allowed yourself to dig into it a little bit and no longer think about pyramids as being a kind of decorative device, but something that actually had a, a very powerful transformative quality for African-Americans in Chicago at that time. You know, so I think it, it was... It, it had depended a lot on who you were and what you came to as presuppositions, what you took away from that show. But I know that a lot of people walked away from it with new information and a kind of a newfound love of raw. And we're seeing new waves of that now. So that was really the beginning of a whole series of chain of events that are continuing now. And we have a whole series coming out. It seems like almost every museum now wants to do an Afrofuturism show. And, you know, Ron never used the word Afrofuturism. He's seen as an architect of Afrofuturism at this point, and that's important and great. And so suddenly there are these opportunities for, again, vast numbers of people to see his work in the framework of a bigger cultural movement that's only being identified and and defined and interpreted many years after 
the beginning of its existence. But we're going to have, you know, there's going to be a show at the Smithsonian and that's an Afrofuturism show. And Ra is going to be one of the guiding lights. And a number of other museums are doing those shows right now. And so that's the same kind of thing. Suddenly you're going to have hordes of people, if hordes of people are ever allowed in one place again, coming to see uh, his work and the work of all of his associates in a new way. And a lot of them are going to be learning about him for the first time. So we're going to see yet more waves of this discovery happening now. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. I'm glad to hear that about the Smithsonian show. It's interesting to hear, I'd never made the mental connection with really kind of the birth of the term and the movement of Afrofuturism as coinciding with the time period of the Pathways show. That's, it's right in the zone. I think ultimately that as long as new people are exposed to the work and that that's all that matters. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think that there are ways that the the concept of Afrofuturism, you know, has really interesting overlaps with concepts that were circulating in the raw world. And so for that, I don't think it's an absolutely inappropriate set of terms, you know, for that and then the terms around it. I don't think that they're totally inappropriate. They can, if there's too simplified and people are just thinking about it as like black futuristic, I think that's problematic because it really doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with a whole way of complicating our notions of the historical continuum. And Rao was very interested in that, very interested in, well, as he said at the beginning of Space is the Place, like, uh, you know, outlawing time, you know, that idea of not having a big metronome, not having a big calendar that on which you plot everything, but having a much more fluid sense of the telescoping relationship between the ancient and the future and the present. That part of what it suggests to me and that 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 science and technology have a crucial role in that isn't, again, just to say it's about computers and it's about cyborgism. It's also about technologies in the ancient sense. So, you know, when Ra was talking about solar boats, he was talking about an ancient Egyptian idea. You know, he wasn't specifically talking about jet propulsion. He was talking about something that he was relating back to ancient Egypt. Absolutely. And and you articulated what my, my gut reaction is. There's the potential to oversimplify, but ultimately, as beings, we sometimes need a simple pathway. So I think that you, you said it very well. If that is the context and the frame that it provides a simple and easy to understand explanation that is the gateway to a world of thought that can't be defined, then that's a great thing. Yep, yep, definitely. Well, John, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Christopher. It's a pleasure talking with you and uh, same to you. Everybody can learn more about what John is doing and keep up to date on his most recent projects at johncorbett.info as well as corbettversusdempsey.com. Anything that you're working on right now that we should uh, stay tuned for, John? I am actually writing a book about the final days of of Albert Eiler's life right now. That's been a project I've been working on for a little while. It'll be a short book that'll sort of tend to these mysterious three weeks that he was missing 
from from when he went missing until when he was fished out of the river. And uh, so I'm really, that's the book I'm working on right now. And is there any timeline for when that will be published or is that a long-term work in progress? It's, it's a book I'm working on. You know, I don't actually have a timeline for it. I have an editor I'm working on it with, but I'm not 100% sure when it's going to come out. Understood. Best wishes, and we'll all be looking forward to that, I'm sure. So, again, thank you, John. Thanks, Christopher. Bye-bye. May the 2nd, Excerpts of the music of Sun Ra are used with permission of Sun Ra LLC. Copyright 2020, Sun Ra Archive, with a K. Mm-hmm.